Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. The end of historically low interest rates was expected to be good news for banks, as in a higher interest rate environment, banks tend to be more profitable. This is because the difference between what they charge borrowers for loans and what they pay depositors for funding widens. Unfortunately, the recent crisis in both the United States and Europe show that real life is often more complicated than simple theory. When interest rates and inflation rise, savers feel the pinch of inflation and expect their money to work harder. That doesn't always happen at banks, and this can lead customers to take their money elsewhere, especially in this day and age when it's so easy to move money electronically. When customers move their money away, other funding sources are still available for banks, but these other sources also become more expensive as these investors are also demanding higher yields. In the United States, total bank deposits have been falling since the Fed began raising interest rates last year, as savers realized they could earn higher returns in short-term treasuries or money market funds. Money market funds typically hold very low-risk assets that are easy to buy and sell, including short-dated U.S. government debt. The yields available on money market funds are now the best they've been in years as they rise when interest rates rise and interest rates have been lifted to 15-year highs by the Federal Reserve in its quest to curb inflation. This trend of moving deposits out of bank savings accounts, which had already started, really picked up pace when Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. While the US government agreed to backstop all of the deposits of the two failed banks, they did not guarantee those above $250,000 at other institutions. This led savers to move their deposits from small banks to large banks, as savers wanted the security of having their money at too-big-to-fail institutions. When savers felt prodded to move their money, they obviously paid attention to the interest rate they would be getting on that money. Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase and Fidelity were the biggest winners when investors began moving cash into money market funds. On the other hand, Charles Schwab, State Street and M&T suffered almost $60 billion in combined bank deposit outflows in the first quarter of this year, as customers moved their money to higher yielding alternatives. In a new threat to traditional banks, Apple has now teamed up with Goldman Sachs and launched a new savings account for US customers that will pay a market-leading 4.15% interest. This easily beats the average US bank savings account rate of just 0.37%. It also beats competitors like American Express, which is offering 3.75%, and surprisingly even Goldman's standalone savings account that operates under the Marcus brand, which offers 3.9%. 
Now, to be clear, Apple is not a bank, nor is it becoming one. It's what fintech people would describe as a neobank. It's partnering with Goldman Sachs, a licensed bank, and the deposits will all sit with Goldman, who has access to US government-backed deposit insurance. Apple first entered the financial services business four years ago when they launched the Apple credit card, once again in partnership with Goldman Sachs. In classic Apple style, the tech giant has developed a suite of financial products that includes Apple Card, Apple Pay, Buy Now Pay Later, and Now Savings. This product suite, combined with the closed-loop ecosystem of hundreds of millions of iPhone users, could provide a competitive mode, insulating Apple from the competition, making it an attractive financial services option for tech-savvy customers. In order to get an Apple savings account and the high interest rate associated with it, you first have to have an Apple credit card, which means that you need an Apple iPhone. The savings account has no fees or minimum deposits or balance requirements. The good thing about it from Apple's perspective is that each of the products amplifies the next in a classic example of the network effect. What this means for customers is that once you're locked into the Apple product ecosystem, it might be difficult to leave. Will customers switch to a different brand of phone if they bank with Apple, for example? If you use all of Apple's other financial products, will it be your first stopping point when looking for a loan? In the long run, if this part of Apple's business got quite big, the Federal Trade Commission might start raising questions about antitrust issues. But we're a long way away from that right now. Apple's greatest advantage over traditional banks is its brand. Customers love their products and interact with them all day long. How many times per day do you interact with your technology devices compared to with your bank? Apple has actively marketed its trustworthiness as a technology company for years to differentiate itself from firms like Google and Meta, who mostly rely on targeted advertising or surveillance capitalism for their profits. Apple is frequently listed on corporate most admired lists, unlike many of the big banks. Apple also has the advantage of iPhone user data, which could possibly be used to assess credit risk if Apple planned on doing more in the finance space. Last year, they signaled some interest in doing just that when they purchased Credit Kudos, an alternative credit scoring startup. If their customer data was used to assess credit risk, it could allow them to compete with credit rating agencies, but equally doing this might offend their customers. Apple is well-placed to solve some of the problems that have plagued traditional banking for years. Take the Buy Now, Pay Later program, for example. Apple funds these loans largely from its own balance sheet, which had $165 billion in cash and marketable securities as of the first quarter of 2023, with total debt of $111 billion. This is very different to banks who typically operate with 90% or more borrowed money. By using so much more equity funding, Apple is much less fragile than the average bank. 
The question for financial services firms is how worried should they be about competition from Apple? Apple is a huge firm that dwarves even the largest banks, and they haven't really been hiding their ambitions in this space. Since 2016, Apple has claimed to be on a journey to replace the wallet, and current job ads speak of transforming the industry in payments. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, has been paying attention too. In a speech last summer, he described Apple as a bank, saying, It may not have insured deposits, but it's a bank. If you move money, hold money, manage money, lend money, that's a bank. He alluded to the threat again in his letter to investors earlier this month, saying, Large tech companies have enormous resources in data and proprietary systems, all of which gives them an extraordinary competitive advantage. In 2014, Apple Pay was announced along with the iPhone 6. A lot of people made fun of the idea early on, as very few people initially used it. But by last year, more than 75% of iPhone users used Apple Pay, and it had reached such a scale that the European Commission had opened an antitrust investigation into it. In February of last year, Apple added a new technology to the iPhone, allowing it to accept payments from credit cards with no additional hardware or payment terminal needed. The service works with payment service providers today, but the implications of the technology are quite significant. If the customer and the merchant are both using Apple products to process payments, Apple has the capability to create a closed loop that doesn't require banking partners or networks like Visa and MasterCard to move money. Apple is not trying to become a bank in any official sense, which is probably wise given how other tech companies have done when trying to enter the financial industry. Facebook, for example, tried to build a stablecoin, DM, before eventually scrapping the project. But the fact that Apple is beginning to look and act like a bank raises questions about eventual disruption in the banking industry and of big tech in general. Right now, Apple require a bank like Goldman Sachs in the background, and Apple's interest in financial services appears to mostly be about extending the reach of the iPhone, adding convenience and keeping users locked into the Apple ecosystem. But Apple does have a long history of partnering with other firms until it's to their advantage to go it alone. It's quite likely that a firm like Apple would never want to find itself getting any deeper into the banking business. Banks are businesses that are bogged down in regulation. Adhering to that regulation can be complex and any missteps can be disastrous from a public relations perspective. Big tech firms like Apple, Google and Amazon have amazing reach to trusting customers. When Apple launched their credit card four years ago, they had a significantly lower cost of acquiring new customers in that space than any other card issuer, simply because they have such a good distribution network. 
their long-term goal might simply be to provide more and more services to their customers to lock them into the Apple ecosystem. It may be unattractive to get bogged down in financial regulation and draw the attention of antitrust regulators. In many ways, Apple may be more of a threat to fintech neobanks like Nubank or Revolut than it is to the traditional banks that it partners with. Revolut is a fintech neobank that's highly UK market focused. It evolved from a low fee money transfer service to offering bank accounts across Europe through its Lithuanian banking license, as well as being registered as an e-money institution in the UK. In July 2021, Revolut raised $800 million in Series E funding, valuing the business at $33 billion. The deal was co-led by SoftBank and Tiger Global. Other investors included Schroeder's and TriplePoint. Schroeder's has since written down their stake in the deal by 46%, and TriplePoint lowered the value of its stake by 15%. Revolut's current valuation is still a massive 52 times its 2021 revenues, and its revenues are less than $50 per customer, worse than a convenience store. The more Apple starts to look like a traditional bank, the more attention they can expect from regulators. It would appear that they can possibly avoid doing that while partnering with Goldman, branding the products as Apple and charging a healthy fee for their part of the deal. One way or another, it looks like we can expect more banking to be done via the iPhone going forward. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Don't forget that if you enjoyed it, uh, tell a few of your friends about the podcast, as that's really how podcasts grow. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.